Good morning and welcome. I greet each one in Jesus' name this morning. I too am uh, glad for all the visitors that decided to stay around the day and uh, worship with us. We're glad you're here and and uh, come back again sometime. It's uh, it's nice to have you. So, those of you who attend here regularly, once again know that I have been working through a series here for the last few months on what we as a Mennonite church call the seven ordinances. And for those of you that may not be familiar with that, we call an ordinance, we refer to an ordinance as something that we practice quite in a physical way on somewhat of a regular basis, but the meaning behind that practice is much deeper and has a more spiritual perhaps even heavenly uh, meaning behind it. And so there, there are seven. We refer to as seven, and um, there maybe could be more to this list, but that's what we have. And so far I have spoken on the ordinance of baptism, the ordinance of communion, the ordinance that we call foot washing in our circles, and the ordinance of the holy kiss. I have looked at those four and have and have reflected on them a bit. All of these practices, all of these ordinances so far, these four, are something that if you are a member here at this particular body, you're very familiar with. And, and if you are not, you may be as well. I'm not sure. It all depends on where you where you live and how you perhaps practice these things. But if you if you're here, you know you know what this is. The last three that we're going to look at are ordinances that if you are here and you are a member of this body of believers here, you could very well go through life and never practice. That's the ordinances of marriage, the Christian woman's veil, and the anointing with oil. So if you are an unmarried man that never gets sick, you may never practice any of these particular ordinances. However, we're familiar with them. So this morning, I, I debated, I really debated which one to, uh, to go for this morning because there's really no particular order or, or of importance or anything to these ordinances. But I figured, well, while we're in the heat of it, let's go ahead and talk about the ordinance of marriage. It seems like that's kind of the theme this year. Uh, four marriages in this congregation in one year is kind of the flip opposite of what usually is one marriage in four years. So it's, it's kind of backwards this year, but but we're kind of in a blitz here, and we got uh, two down, two to go, and uh, and it's been a good thing. And I'm I'm happy to I'm happy that uh, to see young couples um, experiencing this, marrying in the Lord, and uh, and it's a good thing. Marriage. If there's one thing about the ordinance of marriage that is perhaps unique of all the ordinances, it is. We call it an ordinance, but it's actually something that is practiced very widely. Uh, in other words, non-Christian people get married. Uh, they know something about this, whereas the other six, um, a non-Christian probably would never necessarily participate in. But marriage is a simple, fundamental bedrock of society that God instigated in chapter 2 of Genesis. Very familiar with that. And I think he did it basically for three reasons. I think he did it for the happiness, the satisfaction, and completeness of a man and a woman. I think he also did it for the propagation of the human race. 
And I think the institution of marriage, as God designed it, provides a secure and a safe place for a couple to raise children. And I should say perhaps children that will will make a positive contribution to society. We're, we're in a grand experiment in the last 50, 60 years in this society to see just how this thing will go to try to raise children in what, what is called single-parent homes. And we've, we've been into this experiment long enough to tell that it is not working out. It is not working out well at all. And the reason it is not is because it is not God's plan. Now, we understand there are times that a, a partner may die. And um, a man or a woman is by, is by, not by their choice, I should say, is in a situation where there is a single parent home. And God can, can be the father to those orphans and the husbands to those widows. And we know that. That's scriptural. But that is not something we should pursue uh, intentionally. That, that's something that sometimes, unfortunately, does happen. It should be of no surprise to us that many of the major social ills in this country that we live can be traced back to the complete chaos that is in this institution we call marriage. Now, hear me right here. The, the, the main need of man, the, 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 the bottom line need of all mankind is to have Jesus as his personal Savior, to receive Christ as his Savior. I don't want to minimize that. But I, I will say this, and if, if, you, if you disagree with me, I'd be very interested in discussing this with you. But as I reflected on, on how things are today versus how they were when I was even a child and how I know them to have been even prior to that, I know that people say there is no such thing as a good old days. I get that. I know the whole cliche that it takes a bad memory and what a good imagination to, 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 to talk about good old days. However... I would, I would put forth that in a bygone era, when marriage was respected and practiced by Christian and non-Christian alike, society was much better served. I just really believe that. Well, let's, let's delve into this a bit. Um, there's two passages I would like to turn to, one in the old, one in the new. Let's turn to Genesis 2 here. I referred to that already. And I would like to just uh, look at a few basic um, fundamentals, I guess, um, some, some things that we can learn from, from this particular chapter about marriage, and then a few observations from a New Testament passage as well. So turn with me to Genesis 2. As I mentioned before, marriage was the very first institution that God introduced to mankind. And there's some uh, some very fundamental things that are set in, in stone here, um, starting at verse 18. And I'm not sure that I'm going to take the time to read this, but we're going to refer to a few things here in chapter 2, verses 18 to 25. The first thing I'm going to call your attention to is verse 18. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helpmeet for him. Now, principle number one is that the fact that it was not good for man to be alone was not Adam's idea. Adam, at this point, did not know that it was not good for him to be alone. He was alone, and that's all he knew, so how could he know anything different? So he didn't even know that. But God observed, and he said, it is not good that Adam is alone. 
Okay, he, he makes that observation. And, and it's always interesting to me that the next thing that God did was he didn't say, now I'm going to put Adam, on, you know, I'm going to make him unconscious now. I'm going to take this rib out. I'm going to make this, this woman. That happens a few verses later. First of all, he says, you know, I'm going to get Adam to name all these animals. Now, how long that took and, and how that all worked would be quite interesting to know. But I, I don't know, to, did Adam sit on a stone somewhere under a shade tree and God brought all the, the animals past him? We don't know that. But somehow or the other, Adam got to see all the animals. And somehow he had a vivid enough of imagination and a wide enough, um, I, I don't know, name base to pick from that he came up with names for each of these animals. And I do not think that was by mistake that that happened. When, when Adam saw that last mouse come and pass, and he said, I'm going to call that thing a mouse. He said, you know, I've ever seen everything from a rhinoceros to a hippopotamus to a cow to a goat to a mouse and a lot of other things in between there. And there's not a one of those things that I want to sleep with tonight. I just really believe that's why God had Adam do that. There is nothing in this creation of God's that meets my needs. Now, I'm convinced of that as well. Now, what I'm going to do about that, I don't know. But I do know that there's really nothing that attracted me here today as I named these animals. I really think that's why God allowed that to happen. So we know what happened. God, God caused this deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he took out a rib, closed up the flesh, and... Um, and he brought this, this woman to Adam, and Adam looked at this woman in verse 24, or 23, and he said, This is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Now, it is interesting that Adam also named his wife. This is a woman now. He, he, he hadn't run out of names. He hadn't used that on any of the animals, I guess. And he said, This is a woman. Now, in verse 24, Therefore, now, the, the, after, I always think about what Ellis says. He goes, when you see a therefore in the Bible, you should look what it's there for. And that's, Ellis, thank you for that. So what is therefore, therefore? Well, it says therefore. If you reflect back on the verses that we just read, shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. From now and on, a man and woman should leave and cleave and become one flesh because really what had just happened was man was one flesh and he had part of that taken away from him and now that part is over here standing beside him. So if he takes that woman back, he now is whole again, see? That rib is that, that, rib that was taken out of him is now over here in Eve somewhere and if I take Eve as mine and I cleave to her, I am now a whole person once more. But Eve is a part of that, is a part of that particular process at this point. I am not completely whole, if you will, unless Eve is by my side. In Mark 10, Jesus refers to this. He goes, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female for this cause, or we could say, therefore, shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife? And they twain shall be one flesh. So then they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together. Okay, there's a therefore again. What God has brought together in these two. Let not man put asunder. 
There's much more we could talk about here, but we're going we're gonna to now turn to a New Testament scripture. Let's go to Ephesians 5 and pick out a few principles out of this particular passage as well. So Ephesians 5 and about verses, oh, about 22 to the end of the chapter. Again, I'm not necessarily going to read the chapter. I'm just going to point out a few things here that I think is important for us to look at. This, this passage clearly lays out how marriage, as much as any of the ordinances we look at, represent the relationship of Christ and the church. First of all, Paul addresses the role of the wives in verses 22 to 24. And the overriding theme is obviously a role of submission to the husbands just like the church is subject to Christ. That's the analogy that Paul very quickly and easily makes. Any, anybody with any basic reading skills would come to that conclusion. To me, this, this calls for a two-way challenge. So if the church, if the church submitted to Christ on the same level, ladies, as you submit to your husband, would Jesus say he has a submissive church? Now you think about that. As people observe your submission to your husband and they talk and they think of that or it, if it would be thought of as the submission of the church to Christ, would they say we have a good example here of how that should work? On the other hand, if us men, if our wives used our submission to Christ, and by extension the body of Christ, the church, as her gauge for how she should submit to you, how submissive would that submission look? Does she have a good example in you and me? What submission should look like to her, to you? The bottom line is this. Wives are called to be in submission to their husbands, and the church is called to be in submission to Jesus. It's just simply, so simply put here. There's two verses I want to call your, your attention to that um, I think, yeah, it just goes hand in hand so, so much. In 1 Peter 3, when, when, when Peter is addressing the, the ladies here in his audience, and, he, and he's talking about how a lady should adorn herself, and then he sums it up like this. He goes, For after this manner, in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves. And here's how they did it. Being in subjection to their own husbands. And then he gives an example. He said, Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Okay? Whose daughters ye are also, as long as you do well and are not afraid with any amazement. All right? Uh, I don't. I have never heard of anybody in, in any in the circles I run in anyway refer to their husbands as Lord. You know, my Lord said that I should you know do this and thus. We, we'd say that's maybe a little over the top, maybe a little maybe a little unnecessary. But that's the example that Peter gives. He goes, Sarah called Abraham her Lord. Okay. Now let's let's let's. Let's leave that for a minute. Let's go over to Luke 6, and there's an interesting verse here where Jesus is asking a group of people that he's addressing in that day. And in verse 6, he says, And why call ye me Lord, Lord, 
and do not the things that I say. You see the simple analogy here. As a husband, I'm sorry, as a wife can call her husband Lord, so Jesus expects the church and and each individual as as members of that church to to submit to him as Lord. But he said, here's how I'm going to know whether I'm actually Lord. If you do the things that I say. Now that's a mouthful. And and I don't even know how this is hitting you today, whether you're recoiling at this or whatever. I, I trust not. Sometimes I wonder if if the if the whole feminist liberation movement has wormed its way into the church at all, and if we have lost any of this sense of exactly how submission and the role of the husband and wife works. Okay. Um, I don't, I don't think that we're struggling largely on that, on that scale. I don't, I don't get the sense that we have a lot of tension in our marriages because of quote, quote, unsubmissive women. I do not sense that at all. But I'm just wondering, uh, if the theme here that seems to be driven home so vividly and so easily understood, if we really grasp, um, exactly what God is calling, um, women too in their marriages. Well now, women are not the only people that are addressed here in this chapter. It's also the, the, the husband that is addressed as well. In verses 25 to 30. And the, the, uh, the, the proclamation or whatever to the husband is just as easily understood. Husbands are to love their wives... Just as Christ loved the church. Church submit to Jesus. And so, so, so on the wife's side is the church is, uh, is submitting. We have that analogy. Here on the husband's side, we have like the husbands loving their wives just as Christ loved the church. Alright, so this brings us to a question to us as husbands. If Christ loved the church to the degree that we love our wives, what would that look like? How, how would that would you be satisfied with that love? Verse 26 and 27 gives the reason that Christ loved the church. It says, so that the church may be sanctified and cleansed and become this glorious church. That's what the love of Christ is doing for the church. Again, can, can we make the, the analogy? The better we love our, our wives, the more we love them, the more they know that. Isn't that going to make, quote, quote, better wives? Indeed, it will. I mean, if if you have true love extended to you and lauded upon you, suddenly this is a very enjoyable place to be, and this whole submission thing is just not that big a deal. It's not that hard. I think in conclusion, when women properly submit, they become easy to love. And when husbands properly love, the submission comes easy as well. You think about it as a vicious cycle. We used to think of vicious cycles as a, as a very negative thing. But this is a vicious cycle that actually gets, it's a beautiful thing. And I think it's something that, um, that very, very, um, we should pursue. Now, I want to just say this at this point. This relationship of a man and a woman is not about um, 
is not about suppression. Okay, and that's the way it's conceived and, and thought of in the world. And I'm not going to say, in fact, I will say it is perhaps practiced that way. That is perhaps why we had the, the women's liberation movement um, to the degree that we do today. That's the reason feminism is such a rabid movement. Perhaps it was because of the, the breakdown or the lack of love or whatever on the part of, of us as men. But I would like us as Christians not to think about this as some sort of a suppression issue or something like that. It's, it's about completion. As I mentioned before, when that rib was taken from Adam, I think, think of it this way, was perhaps that rib, I think when Adam was, was made, God, it said God made everything perfect. I think everything was perfect before the fall. And I think that those womanly characteristics that women have, you know, that of patience and a little bit more lovable and just, you know, the feminine qualities we think about. I, I tend to believe Adam had those qualities before that rib was taken. And when that rib was taken out of Adam, he kind of lost those qualities. And the only way those qualities could be regained was when he took a woman again. Okay, that's, that's what I believe. That's not scripture, but I don't think it's too much of an imagination to believe that. The only way now that we can have a, a, a complete holistic unit is to have a husband and a wife. That is why I believe that as, as much as the women's lib movement has pursued being like men, in today's world, we talk about Fortune 500 companies, which is basically Fortune Magazine's list of the top 500 companies by revenue in the United States every year. They're referred to as Fortune 500 companies, and you've heard of them. In the Fortune 500 companies, does anybody know how many of those companies have a woman for their CEO? You probably don't. I'll just tell you. It is 24%. I looked it up online, 24%, and there was this, there was this um, graph that showed that the amount of C, or the number of C, C, CEOs in Fortune 500 companies is on the slide. It's dropped from 32% to 24% in the last two years. Now, for as much noise as you hear about making sure women have their spot exactly at the same places that men do across the board and, and this you know, the, the, the amount of consternation that we experienced over the last election cycle that we just could not get a woman elected to the presidency and so on and so on. I believe that there is a just a fundamental reason that is. Can I say it? Do I have to cover the mic? I don't think women were necessarily cut out to be CEOs. That's just what I believe. I believe that is why fundamentally you do not have 75% of the CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, women. Now, I don't know. Are you going to chase me out of this church? I don't know. But that's really what I believe. And that is not like, we shouldn't feel bad about that. Why isn't it that many daycare workers are men? Why is that? We don't have the qualities. We don't have the credentials to do that. Folks, it's not about pursuing the other role. It's about filling the role that we were made to fill. So we don't have to feel bad, bad about these things. We're just doing what we do best. And if, and if men make good CEOs, that's fine. If women make better daycare workers, praise the Lord. It's just the way it is. And then 
Paul talks about it in verse 32. He goes, this is a great mystery. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Let's consider some of the basic fundamentals of marriage that are becoming increasingly fuzzy in the world we live in today. I've alluded to the uh, to some of it already. Let's look at it it's just a little bit uh, closer. We'll look at three. There's probably 30. We'll limit it to three this morning. Number one, fundamental principle number one, marriage is between a man and a woman. And I am sorry to say that i got to stand up here this morning and say that. Now, I'm happy that I think, I believe that most in this audience completely agree with me. But I am very sorry to say that we live in a society where that is not the recognized standard any longer. And to show you how swiftly this has changed, in 1960, every state in our union had what they called an anti-sodomy law. Okay, in 1960, that was the year that some of you were born here, not not very long ago. In 1986, our Supreme Court upheld the state of Georgia's right to enforce anti-sodomy laws. 1986, just a few years ago. 17 years later, in 2003, it struck down the right for the state of Texas to enforce its anti-sodomy laws. So in a span of 13 years, we have a complete about-face. And in 2015, as we all know, same-sex marriage was legalized in this country. That shows how swiftly things have changed in the country we live in. It is as clear as crystal in the Genesis account that marriage is between a man and a woman. And the very recent events that we have here and the redefinition of marriage between two men or two women is a very sharp departure from central centuries of societal norms. That's one thing, but it's even more shameful that it is embraced by many so-called Christians today when it is a practice that is clearly, clearly outside of God's design for the human race. In Romans 1, Paul calls it vile affections. That's, that's what he calls it. He says that people that practice these things will receive in themselves that recompense of their error which was meat. Now, do you understand what he's saying there? I'll put it to you in layman's terms. He's saying that the reaping of these ungodly relationships are generally self-destructive. That's what he's saying. The National Institute of Health shows that this population of society has more mental and physical health issues than the general population. I was also very interested to read about, or I should say I listened to, a a woman who was raised in Australia, I believe it was, by a same-sex woman relationship. And when Australia went to legalize this same-sex marriage thing, and I, this has been a number of years ago now, she was an advocate against it, against it. As far as I could tell, she was not a Christian. She was raised in a lesbian home, but she was completely against it. When she was asked by the interviewer why she was against it, she said, something in my life was missing. There was something that was missing. 
And it is not right that an innocent child against his own will should be put into a situation that he has no control over and something should be vast, so vastly missing. That, to me, was a mouthful. Now, you will not see that splashed over the evening news. That's going to be pretty much hidden. You're going to have to hunt for stories like that. But that's the honest truth of it. I don't share this 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 morning because I believe this is where we're struggling. I don't really believe it is. But I share this to reinforce the fact that rap, our society is rapidly departing from not only what is godly, but what is natural. And I don't believe we should join the crowd that holds placards and throws hate around. That's not where we belong. God loves those people. We should love those people too. But God hates sin. I don't care what that sin is. He hates it. Let's never forget that. Let's never forget that. God defined marriage, and no matter how much man plays with that definition or tries to redefine, nothing changes. The truth stands. Let us be wise as serpents and harmless as doves in these matters. Fundamental number two. Marriages are based on a commitment, not love. Now you might say, what do you mean by that? Does that mean I don't have to love my wife? Here's what I mean by this. If you, if you look at the Genesis account, and we did, it says, therefore shall a man leave and cleave. It does not say, therefore shall a man leave and love. It doesn't say that. It says he should leave and he should cleave. The overriding argument for same-sex marriage is I should have the right to marry the person that I love. Uh, that should be my, that should be okay for me to do that. Now, I will admit, it would be very difficult for me to imagine being married to a person I did not love. Neither does the Bible say that. Go find the person you love the least and marry him. It doesn't say that neither. All right, so let's be clear about that. Love is indeed an essential part of marriage. The only thing we have in the New Testament, as far as any qualifications on marriage, the only thing is that it should be in the Lord. That's that's the only thing it says. It says, if you marry, marry somebody that is in the Lord, just as you are. Now, I'll tell you why that's the only qualifier. You think about it. If we have two Christians, we're both in the Lord, and this marriage is going to be consummated in the Lord, it's going to take care of a lot of problems. The entire trajectory of that marriage is going to be completely different than the trajectory of two non-Christians. One of the virtues of Christians is that they love. Christians love. So that's an automatic, well, automatic. It's going to be exponentially easier and more, um, uh, more natural, okay? Christians love. So we don't have to say that you know, marry the person you love, but because if you're in the Lord, that part of it's taken care of already. Christians are called to love even their enemies. Now, love can ebb and flow to a degree, and any of you that have been married for any length of time know this. There's just days that it's easier to love than others, okay? It just is. And we won't go into that a lot. But commitment is a completely different thing. If I am committed to my partner, it does not matter whether I am loving my partner today or not, I am committed. I have committed to cleave, and so that thing stands. And tomorrow, maybe those butterflies will come back again. 
Okay? I am really boiling this down, and this would be a seminar, okay? I'm boiling it down, so please don't take me out of context here. My point is this. In the Lord and commitment, that is what marriage must stand on. If marriage is based on love alone, that's it, just love, those butterfly love things, it is on a very shaky foundation at best. And that is why it is very advisable for courting couples to leave the physical aside and concentrate on the emotional and and the spiritual. Because that is what's going to take you through the hard times whenever you are married. All right, fundamental number three. Marriage is for life with no exceptions. That is a mouthful, I understand. I'd like to dig into this a little bit and and look at some scriptures why we conclude that that is the case. In Matthew 19, verses 3 to 9, and if, if you're there, just, just flip to that real quick. Jesus is... Uh, Again, I think I referred to this earlier, but it says in verse 3 that the Pharisees came to him and their express purpose was to tempt him, to see what he would say. So here's a question we can get him with. Is it lawful for a man to put his, away his wife for every cause? Or in other words, what, he say, what, the, what these people are saying is, is there any reason at all that it would be legitimate for me to put away my wife? That, that's, the, that's the question. Jesus answered that... Um, have you not heard? He said, have you not heard? That is, from the beginning, male and female, and, and he goes on. And then in verse 6, he goes, what therefore God has joined together, let not man put asunder. And they said, well, what about the Moses thing? You know, Moses allowed for divorce, and he said, it is because of the hardness of your hearts that Moses gave you those divorce papers. It was never, never God's will. And then he gives this, uh, what is known as the exception clause. He goes, and I say unto you, whosoever shall put his way, away his wife, except it be for fornication. And that is a clause that is, is what, I guess I'd say, all people that advocate there, there would be some reason for divorce hang their hat on. Jesus did give an exception. I don't have the time to delve deeply into that, but remember just a few things. In the Old Testament era and in this, this, this time here when Jesus lived, a couple that was espoused to each other, that were engaged, were called husband and wife. You can, you can read in Deuteronomy 20 and 22, if you wish to verify that, go back and read that. It refers to engaged couples as husband and wife. We, we save those, those terms for after marriage. They used it during the engagement period. So, so the, I believe the word fornication here, my, my take on this would be is, is exactly that. Save for the cause of fornication would be much like the experience of Joseph and Mary whenever Joseph was debating in his mind whether he should put Mary away because it sure appeared as if Mary had committed fornication. All right? That's, that's what I believe. 
The other thing that is pointed to is that uh, this word fornication really is the word pornia, which just means unfaithfulness, sexual unfaithfulness. And it doesn't, doesn't really um, mean prior to marriage. And I understand that. But let's just say this. Let's just say that there is times whenever separation would be advisable. And there may be those cases. Never, ever. Is there ever room given for remarriage? Ever. Okay? So maybe sometimes separation would be advisable. But nowhere can you find where a remarriage would be acceptable. And you can read. You can read in these, uh, in these verses. And I say to you, whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, commits adultery. So even if the reason for putting away was okay, if you marry another, you have committed adultery. Whosoever marrieth her, that was put away, committeth adultery. Do we need, do, does it need to be plainer than that, I guess? I would like to briefly just consider some anecdotal references that portray the heart of God toward unfaithful spouses. In Jeremiah 3.1, there was an Old Testament law that said if a man puts away his, his wife, that he could never take that wife back again because it said, the land would be polluted if you did that. That's the terminology that's used in the Old Testament. In Jeremiah 3, God uses that. He says, that's the law. But you, Israel, have been unfaithful to me, yet I am pursuing you. I am pursuing you even despite your, your adultery that you are committing with the world, putting it in my terms. The heart of God is that that relationship would be reconciled. Think of Hosea and Gomer. Hosea went and took that whore and married her, and the whore went and, and committed more whoredom. What was, Hosea's, um, what was Hosea supposed to do? Divorce that woman? No. God says, Hosea, you go and you pull her out of the dregs and you take her back again. Consider Malachi 2. I'm going to read this in the New King James. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce, for it covers one's garments with violence says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that ye deal not treacherously. The Lord God says, I hate divorce. A New Testament verse in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 10 and 11. This is Paul writing, And and unto the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord. Let not the wife depart from her husband, but, and if she depart, let her remain unmarried. So he's saying there might be the occasion where she does depart. If that happens, let her remain unmarried. Or let her be reconciled to her husband. But he goes, let not the husband put away his wife. Now that's interesting because in the Old Testament, the, it, it always refers to the husband putting away the wife, not the other way around. Never. Never is it referred to the other way around. In this particular situation, Paul says, if the wife leaves, don't let her remarry, but don't let, complete opposite of the Old Testament, do not let the husband put away his wife. I just find that interesting how that switches in the New and Old Testaments. There's many other verses we could refer to, and I don't have time to do that. But suffice it to say, the heart of God is that he hates divorce. That's what Malachi says. Another argument that you sometimes hear was, I was divorced before I was a Christian, and thus my marriage was not valid. I would just say that there's no indication that God does not recognize marriages of the ungodly. 
In Genesis 4, it refers to the wives of Cain and Lamech. Both of these people were very ungodly, vile people. Yet God talks about their wives. John the Baptist, and for the life of me, I've wondered often why he did this. He felt behooved to go to that wicked, wicked King Herod. Tell that wicked man, you should not have the wife that you have. You have your brother's wife and you should not. Now, why did he do that? He knew good and well that that probably was not going to bode well for him. Was Herod's main problem that he married his brother's wife? Don't we say wicked people do wicked things? Isn't that what we say sometimes? That the main problem is not the fact that he's sinning. It's the the fact that he needs a savior. I don't know exactly why John the Baptist felt behooved to do that, but that's what he did. Ungodly people on both sides. And yet he said, it is unlawful for you to have that man's wife. That's what he told him. He lost his head for it. The woman at the, at the well in John 4, Jesus said, go get your husband. She said, I don't have any. She said, wrong. You have five. You have five. Closely related, there's also the thought, when I become a Christian, my past is forgiven. And thus to remain in a divorced and remarried state is okay. Often the verse is used, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. That statement is a true statement. However, does redemption and remission of sin grant immunity from the consequences of past sin? That's the overriding question. Consider three examples. Moses struck the rock when he shouldn't have. Was Moses forgiven? Yes, he was. Did he have immunity to the consequences? Indeed, he did not. He begged God to go into the promised land, and God said, quit talking to me about it. You are not going into the promised land. David committed adultery with Bathsheba. Was David forgiven? He was. Did it grant him immunity? It did not. Now, the law said he should have been stoned. That part was did not take place. But his son died and he had chaos in his house from that point forward because of his sin. The thief on the cross, I'll see that man in heaven someday, but he paid the civil penalty for his sin. He died a thief's death on the cross. A smoker that smokes two packs of cigarettes every day becomes a Christian. Does that smoker gain immunity from lung cancer? He does not. He may still very well get lung cancer. The point I'm trying to make people is there are certain things that when we do it, even though we become a new creature in Christ, we are not granted immunity from the consequences of those bad choices we made. We may as well just ante up to that. And I did not give an exhaustive list. I did not. I tried to just give you some idea of what I'm trying to say. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11, Paul gives a whole list of people that will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. And here's what he says at the end of that list. He goes, and such were some of you. Some of you were murderers. Some of you were adulterers. Some of you were these people. But you are washed. You are saved. You are sanctified. And nobody had to guess whether the people that murdered quit murdering or not.
I have to bring this to a conclusion here. There's other things I could say. Another thing that I, I hear sometimes, and I want to just touch on this very quickly, because this is one that somebody I know very, very personally that my heart grieves for told me, he goes, God wants me to be happy. He said, my wife left me. My wife left me. I didn't leave her. She left me. I didn't want that to happen. God wants me to be happy. Folks, does God want you to be happy this morning? How many of you believe God wants you to be happy? Raise your hand. It's okay. Yeah. God wants you to be happy. How will you be happy? There's only one path to happiness. The path to happiness is godliness. That's it. That's it. You will never be happy if this particular individual goes and pursues the path that it looks like he's following. He's going to marry another person. I don't know how this is all going to turn out, but I can tell you one thing. He will never truly be happy. He won't. He will not be. Folks, this is very difficult. I know situations. I thought of one while I was preparing this. A man I know well. Married his high school sweetheart. A year into it, the sweetheart got hard heart. And she took off on him. No children involved. Very, very sad situation. He went and got married to another lady. They had six beautiful children. Nice, decent family. Um, I didn't know for years the backstory of this particular person. Didn't know it for years. My heart breaks. From what the scripture says, I can only conclude one thing. Do I feel cold-hearted thinking that truth through? Yep, I do. But folks, as soon as we begin to make excuses and exceptions, there will be no convenient stopping point. I am convinced the reason the broader Mennonite church today is accepting gay marriage is because 50, 60 years ago, they accepted divorce in their churches. I am convinced of it. There is no stopping point when you start down this road of making excuses and exceptions when the word of God is clear. The best antidote, as I said before, enter marriage carefully. It's a wonderful place to be, but it needs to be entered into carefully. I'm going to end with my last point here because I feel like I need, I need to, uh, to just say this yet. I said it in the outstart. I'm going to say it again. Marriage is not a requirement for everyone, and sometimes the wisest choice is to remain single for a variety of reasons. Paul says this clearly in 1 Corinthians 7. He goes, For I would that all men were even as myself. And he's referring to his marital state, which was single. He said, But every man hath his proper gift of God, one after this manner and one after that. Now, in, 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 in our language, he's saying, For some of you, it's better to be married, and for some of us, it's better not to be. In my particular situation, it's better not to be. And he said, Perhaps for some of you, that would be the case as well. Jesus said something very similar in Matthew 19, and we read these, this scripture. I didn't completely finish it. But the disciples, after hearing that divorce and remarriage in the eyes of Jesus was not something that should happen, they said, it's better if we just never get married. I mean, they was like, ah, I don't know. If there's no out on this thing, maybe we just shouldn't get married. And Jesus just calmly says, he goes, 
There are some eunuchs which were born from the mother's womb, and there are some that are made eunuchs of men. And then there are some eunuchs which have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. And then he says a simple ter- this simple sentence. He that is able to receive it, let him receive it. I don't think that those two sentences are tagged on there because Jesus ran out of something to say. He basically said, there's going to be a very small segment of people that can actually receive what I just said. Are you one of those people or aren't you? There's nothing wrong with singlehood if the reasons are noble and not selfish. There have been many single people that have dedicated themselves to the things of God in ways that married people never could. Also, at times, there are physical difficulties that would make marriage and family rearing especially challenging, and it is a good reason to refrain. And perhaps there is situations of hardship, as referred to in 1 Corinthians 11, where the season, the particular hardship of the times, say it is unadvisable for me to get married. And then indeed, there are instances where there would be people who would desire marriage, but for various reasons, it does not seem to work out. All I'll say to that is, I would encourage these folks to refocus and find ways to fulfill your life and serve God in meaningful ways. The Bible is clear that the steps of a good man are ordered of the Lord. And if you are a good man and you are walking in the ways of the Lord, if marriage is in his program for you, that will happen. It will happen. But it will only happen in God's time. I hope that looking at this ordinance today has helped us to gain some appreciation again for God's design for mankind and the importance of the... Of the um, seriousness of marriage. There's one other marriage that the Bible talks about that's way beyond the scope of this talk. But there's a marriage supper of the Lamb that's coming up. We don't want to miss that. So we can't be of that number that says, Lord, Lord, and does not the things that he says if we expect to be at that table someday. We just can't expect that. May God help us to that end.